Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alps in Brief, the Alps Risk Management Podcast. We're coming to you from the Alps home office in the historic Florence building in beautiful downtown Missoula, Montana. I'm Mark Bassingthwaite, the Alps Risk Manager, and I have the pleasure today of sitting down with Patrick Krill. Uh, and Patrick has been involved with the uh, National Task Force for Lawyer Well-Being, and we've been uh, having some podcasts of late on Lawyer Well-Being, lawyer well-being and it, it's, it's really a pleasure to, to have uh, Patrick with us. Patrick, can you take a few moments and just uh, introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about, about yourself. Sure, sure, Mark, and thanks for the invitation to join you today. Um, you know, quickly, my background is that I'm a former practicing attorney who, after about seven and a half years in the profession, realized that I was, as many people at some point in their career do, uh, I was looking for something else. And so I made the not easy decision to return to school, and I actually pursued a master's degree, earned a master's degree in addiction counseling. And I, I knew that counseling, something in the sort of psychology field, was a little bit more aligned with what I was trying to do and what I was seeking in my professional journey to be more in a, a helping profession. And so I got my master's in addiction counseling, and I did my clinical training at a place called Hazelden, which has now become Hazelden and Betty Ford, as the two treatment centers merged. And I was then hired as the director of a treatment program for attorneys, judges, and law students at Hazel and Betty Ford. And I was with that organization in total for about six or six and a half years, um, during which time I had the opportunity to counsel hundreds of lawyers and judges and law students from around the U.S. and some international um, patients as well who were struggling with substance use disorders, so, you know, what we would typically think of as addiction or substance abuse, um, but often they were also struggling with a mental health disorder as well, like depression or anxiety. And so I, I really did, through that, oppor- through that work, have the opportunity to, to understand many of the challenges that lawyers face, both in the sort of onset of addiction and depression, but also and what will be probably interesting to your listeners, you know, how do you go back into the practice of law and really maintain whatever well-being you may have established while you were away healing and getting well? Mm-hmm. Uh, because as you know, the practice of law is quite demanding and it can be quite stressful and it can put a lot of strains on people. So, th- so I was there and then I left there in 2016 to launch my own consulting practice, and I now work primarily with large law firms uh, and mid-sized law firms to help them navigate addiction and mental health problems. So whether that's helping them draft policies or doing in-house trainings or when crises emerge, helping them deal with those crises, it's a, it's a variety of things that I do in that space, but it's all related to addiction and mental health. And so as a that's kind of where I've been professionally and what my experience looks like. Um, In in relation to that, I'll just mention quickly two things. I was the the lead author of the 2016 ABA Hazelden Betty Ford study on addiction and mental health problems in the legal profession, which gave us the most robust look at these issues in terms of data that we've ever had. It was a comprehensive survey of 
uh, about 15,000 lawyers in 19 states and all geographic regions of the country. And, and that, what we found there really did lay the groundwork or serve as the predicate for the second thing that I wanted to mention, which was the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing and the report that we published. That group was uh, formed largely in response to what that ABA study found. And from there, we then brought together stakeholders from around the profession, formed this task force, and worked for about a year on a report that outlines things that all different sectors of the profession can be doing to try and reduce the prevalence of both you know, substance abuse problems and mental health problems and to just sort of improve the overall well-being of lawyers and the profession generally. Because I'll just conclude by saying this, the, the sort of quick and dirty or thumbnail version of where we are in the legal profession is we have a lot of problems as it relates to the health and well-being and psychological distress of practicing lawyers. So we've got, we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I have taken a look at the study, the Hazleton study you have uh, referenced and authored and incredibly well done. Um, have been doing some lecturing on it uh, in recent uh, times. And, and right. one of the surprises for me was, you know, I've been in the, the risk management sector here uh, for, for 20 years now, and, and we've been doing uh, our part, you know, it's, it's, there's lots of us involved in trying to, to deal with, with uh, mental illness and addiction issues. And I, I always sort of thought that we were making progress, but if there's anything that I learned from the Hazelson study is, is over the past 20 years, it seems to me the problem has gotten more severe. Uh, and, and I was really surprised by that, looking at older studies and, and data sets. Uh, so we, you are absolutely spot on. We've got a lot of work to do. And uh, I think the, the, the task force is, is a great place to start. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about the work being done in, in the area of lawyer assistance and impairment? You know, and that's, that's all. where is the task force uh, taking us? Sure. Yeah. So, so what the task force report did really, um, it broke, broke out recommendations for various stakeholders in the profession. So for example, there's a, a set of recommendations for the judiciary, things that they can be doing within their own sphere of influence to improve lawyer well-being. There are recommendations for law schools. There are recommendations for professional liability carriers, legal employers, uh, lawyer assistance programs, and it's meant to provide tangible, concrete recommendations that each of these different groups can can look to and begin to incorporate in their own sort of world. Um, and there are there are also general recommendations for the for the whole profession, you know, to try and reduce the level of incivility and toxicity in the profession, um, which, as you might imagine, feeds into Depression. It yes. can also feed in. It can also feed into um, substance abuse in the term in the form of self medication. Um, just as a quick aside, I can tell you that a lot of the patients that I treated in my program would report that they never really even liked drinking that much, or you know, certainly it was never their intention to find themselves addicted to alcohol or drugs, but it was really sort of self-medication. It was the only way that they you know, knew how to blow off steam or 
you know, it's just a form of dealing with psychological distress, and then it turned into its own problem. So we know that that's a real, a, a real phenomenon in the legal profession specifically. Um, but beyond there, beyond that, there are other recommendations, you know, for the profession and for individual stakeholders. I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast to simply Google, or perhaps you can publish it as sort of a companion to this podcast or otherwise cir circulate it to your listeners, the task force report, right? It was published open access. There are no restrictions on its use. You can copy it, distribute it, do whatever you want with it. You know, you, there's no uh, restriction at all on that. Um, I would encourage people to take a look at it and see what they might be able to take from it and bring into, for example, their own local bar association or their own sort of other professional group that they might belong to in the profession. Um, and so it's just kind of out there in the public domain for lawyers to begin incorporating. But beyond that, there are also formal efforts underway at the state level to sort of bring the recommendations down from the national to the state to the local. And so, for example, um, this past week, I was at the National Conference of Bar Examiners annual meeting, and I was on a panel with a couple of my task force co-authors. And we were surveying the audience. There were about 40 or so chief justices from jurisdictions around the U.S. in attendance at, at our session, and we were sort of surveying the audience. And it's clear that in more than a dozen states around the country, the chief justices are taking the lead on this initiative and they're saying, you know, we should form a statewide task force to look at implementing these recommendations at the state level. And so they really are trying to sort of filter it down in their jurisdictions. And those states that aren't already forming their own internal, if you will, task forces are being encouraged to do so. And I'm sure that a lot more are going to be coming online over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. So that's sort of how you can visualize this, if you will, mm -hmm. Change it, changing the culture of the profession, which is what we set out to do. Um, you know, it was this national report intended for the whole U.S. legal profession, all the different sectors and stakeholders. But now in terms of implementation, you know, since there isn't one national body that for example, controls the profession. Right. Um, it, it really does come down to statewide and then, and then even local implementation of the report recommendations. And I will uh, see that we get a link to that uh, for our listeners. We, we definitely will post that with the with the blog. Um, I'm interested as as I listen to what you're talking about. You made a comment about transitions and. and at, I'd like to explore that briefly um, in this way. What do you think, if you will, the roadblocks are uh, as a profession? Um, ha has there been much discussion or look at that? How do we remove the roadblocks to the degree that you, you, you see them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the... That was also one of the goals of this task force report to suggest some things that we can do. I can tell you um, my view, which is also consistent with the, with the task force view, is that one of the biggest roadblocks um, that we have to lawyers sort of taking care of themselves and getting help when they need it. So let's, let's just sort of frame the issue more specifically. Okay. Let's, let's, let's focus just 
for now on the more narrow issues of addiction and mental health problems, right? And when it comes to those specific issues, when lawyers are struggling or they think they may be struggling, what keeps them from raising a hand or reaching out, picking up the phone, um, trying to get some sort of help, telling a colleague they're struggling, is a fear of what that's going to do to them professionally. Uh, you know, a fear that it could jeopardize their reputation, right. it could jeop jeopardize their clients, um, you know, possibly it could somehow impact their license. And so there's just a lot of fear around these issues. And that's why lawyers tend to, you know, try to deal with the problems on them, you know, by themselves on their own or to just ignore the problems and pretend like they're not there. Um, and so to the extent that we can change that culture, that we can begin to destigmatize seeing a therapist, destigmatize going to treatment, destigmatize being in recovery from addiction or, you know, or having overcome depression or chronic anxiety, um, you know, that's going to be that's going to go a long way towards improving the landscape around these issues. Um, so that's, that's one area that we need to work on. The other is really, I mean, chronic, the chronic stress and the demands of the profession. Now, some of that's probably not likely to change, uh, right? I mean, if you think about client demands, if you think about, um, you know, just sort of the, the expectation of being available all the time that technology has now brought into our lives. I mean, some of that is just, I, I don't have easy answers for how you solve that. But what we can do is to try to reduce the level of toxicity and incivility amongst and between ourselves, right? And, and if we as a profession begin to just be a little bit more civil and maybe take a little bit of the adversarial nature out of our adversarial system, um, you know, that again could, could reduce some of the stress and anxiety that lawyers experience, which leads to other problems. How about, you, you know, well, in my experience, again, in terms of uh, reading various uh, articles and, and, and studies, you know, lots of this initially is directed to bar associations, directed large firms, these kinds of things. But a reality is a tremendous percentage of lawyers practicing uh, at least in the United States here, uh, are in the solo small firm setting. For sure. Do you have thoughts or this report in terms of the recommendations, uh, do, do they address this segment? And if so, you know, I, I just, again, I'm curious of your thoughts. You know, how, how do we deal with the problem on the front lines of the solo small firm uh, setting? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. The majority of lawyers don't practice in large or, or really firm of any size settings. And they are, in fact, solo or small firm lawyers. Um, the, the report doesn't include solo practitioners as a sort of, um, you know, stakeholder, if you will, for the reason that it was really geared towards institutions rather than individuals. Mm -hmm. Because the thought was about sort of changing, making change at the system level, at the sort of systems of the profession. Um, that said, I know that lawyers who are in solo practices or small practices, um, they often face really, really um, 
you know, the, the burdens they face are, are greater than lawyers practicing in larger firms, and the challenges they face in terms of being able to take care of themselves are also sometimes greater. For example, if you're a solo practitioner and you're addicted to alcohol and you know it's causing a problem and you know you should probably get some help, but you literally have the, you just can't go away or you don't have the resources, you know, you can't take time away from your practice, you don't have anyone to help you, um, that's a, it's a real challenge. Similarly, you know, if you're in solo practice and you're struggling with depression and you, you don't have somebody that you can sort of offload some of your work to for a period of time. So there are real logistical challenges that solo attorneys face that aren't present in the bigger firm settings. So unfortunately in that in that arena we don't have resources that are as robust as they should be. We have lawyer assistance programs in most states around the country have a lawyer assistance program um, that is in some, you know, some of them are very well developed and very well staffed and they have great programming. Others in less populous states might be, um, you know, they might be just a less effective resource because they don't have a, as large of a staff mm -hmm. or they don't really have the ability to, to serve as many, as many lawyers. Um, but that's that's one place that solo practitioners have historically been able to find some assistance um, when they don't have the resources that come along with being in a larger firm. Um, so to the extent that anyone out there is not familiar with your state's lawyer assistance program, I would encourage you to explore it um, because they may in fact be a really good resource for you and have some, if not sort of uh, live counseling sessions that they would offer or um, you know, groups that they may facilitate that you would be able to attend, chances are they're going to at least have the ability to direct you to other resources and to, you know, provide, uh, you know, content and just sort of put you on the, on the right path. Yeah. And I want to underscore for our listeners that uh, these programs um, are confidential. Yes, you know, I, I think at times people are afraid to reach out. Again, as you, you, you mentioned earlier, I don't want to be labeled mentally ill or something like this. But you know, the the resource that you're talking about here in in many many states is really a very good resource, and it is not about sort of weeding out the weak among us. It is about helping us, th those of us that have these challenges and struggles, to get back on track and and to get back into the profession in in a in a stronger, more competent, healthy way. Uh, so I think if, if again, uh, to those of you listening, if, if you're personally struggling with a problem or know someone who is, please don't minimize the value of this particular resource. You know, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I just want to pick up quickly on something you just said about, uh, you know, it's, it's about getting back on track. Um, I've worked with a lot of lawyers who have gone through the rehabilitative process and if I haven't worked with them professionally um, I've known them and you really can come out just not only as, as good as you were before but better right yes. and so you can have increased competence and in, increased performance and focus and reliability and stamina and clarity and I mean there's just so much value in 
getting ahead of the problem and doing something about it and, and getting some assistance. Um, and it is in by no means is it an indication of a weakness or a flaw. In fact, I think that you know getting help and saying I need some help, I need to take care of myself for uh, you know a period of time, that is in fact demonstrative of good judgment, and that in my view makes you more professional. Mm-hmm. The last uh, brief topic or, or issue I'd like to, to talk about. It's, it's when I think about, again, you know, the, the solo small firm setting in terms of the majority of lawyers practicing here, and also just thinking about some of the data in the study, which surprised me, um, and that's that younger lawyers are really struggling, uh, even in the law school setting. And it seems to me that that, in terms of the institution, or an institution that, that, that can really assist in changing this long term, I mean, this is going to happen overnight, but is, is, is working with law schools to change some things. Is there anything going on in that arena, in that space? It is, and you're right. I mean, because that is essentially the beginning of our professional yes. journey. And, and that is also where a lot of the problems start. I mean, it's where a lot of the mindset really takes hold that if you have a problem, you better keep that to yourself. Um, and so there is a lot happening at the law school level. Um, there, within the American Bar Association's Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs, which I'm part of, we have a lot um, of energy devoted to facilitating change in law schools. But I know a lot of individual schools are beginning to take a long, hard look at this. Um, some schools are being forced to. Uh, Harvard Law School, for example, which is arguably, you know, where some of the best and brightest lawyers mm-hmm. in the country come from. They recently published a study on the health and well-being of their own law students because the students forced the administration to conduct the study um, because they knew that there was a lot of distress happening all around them. The results of that were pretty, in their words, grisly. And so, um, you know, the students themselves are beginning to wake up to these issues and they're really tuning in to the increased focus on lawyer well-being. And they're saying, this isn't what I want for my professional life. This isn't what I want waiting for me after the end of three years and, you know, all this hard work. And so there, there's change happening sort of at the grassroots level there, which I think is very encouraging. Um, because that is where the change needs to start. Yes. You know, because if you come into the profession, you know, law school is a transformative process. It changes the way people think. It changes their attitudes around things like substance use and mental health. And it it really kind of uh, makes them view their reputation as being more important than anything else. And if we can start chipping away at some of that problem problem thinking, uh, you know, that's going to do a lot of good for the younger generation. Well, Patrick, I really, really appreciate your taking the time to uh, to talk with us today, and I really wish uh, tremendous success for you and your fellow members on the, the task force. Uh, you know, we're off to a great start. I should say, you're off to a great start, and it seems like uh, we're getting some real traction uh, more and more at a grassroots level, and I really hope that that continues. To our I- listeners, I would like to say thanks uh, for listening in yet again. Uh, If in future you have um, a topic of interest you'd like to see discussed on the blog, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at mbass at alpsnet.com. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.